Once again, Merry Christmas, Meadowland. Uh, I don't know if you're a big Merry Christmaser. Uh, if you, you know, if that's just this time of year, you're always getting those Merry Christmases out there. For me, it, just, it wasn't part of my natural, uh, I don't know, it just wasn't something that, that I, I grew up saying. And it's interesting with some of the battle I've seen amongst other Christians about this right or ability to say Merry Christmas. I feel in some circles, it's almost taken on uh, almost like a curse word or an offense, like, Merry Christmas, I got it in there, you sucker, you know, I don't know, but um, if, if you're a fan of using that, man, use it in a way to bless people and, and, and to bring them joy in that, say, Merry Christmas, I'm so glad uh, to be able to share uh, what this season is about with you, uh, and that's actually what we're doing here this morning, we're talking about the Christmas story. Before we do that, I want, I want you to think about any good stories you know, and what, what are some of the best stories that come to mind for you? You see, stories carry great significance. There's great meaning that can be communicated in a story. And it just, sometimes there's no better way to share it than just to, to share a story. The stories of a culture can reveal so much. As, as you would look at any people group and look at the stories that come out of that people group, it reveals quite a bit about who they are, right? And whether we're talking fictional or non-fictional. See, the, the fictional stories can still convey some of the values that they have, some of the questions they're asking or, or the beliefs that that people group holds. I had a, a professor in college who was doing a, a dissertation on Proverbs, just kind of the, some of the wise sayings and some of the stories that have come out of different people groups. And he did some time as a missionary over in Africa. And, and one of the, the, the tribes that he was engaging with and building a relationship with, um, they were polygamous. So all the men had multiple wives, and um, he was not. He, he just had his, the, the one wife, and um, he was in a conversation with one of the chiefs of the tribe about why he only had one wife. And they, they went back and forth in this banter using Proverbs. You know, and the, the, he would say, that one would talk about how, uh, you know, a good wife is a blessing uh, to the family and to the husband. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's like having a, a good knife. It's a good tool. And again, this is just in that culture, in that context, that the, uh, what they were using. And then the chief would say, well, aren't five knives better than one? And then my professor would respond back with, can't you get cut more easily with five knives than with one? You know, and they, they come back and forth. And uh, the, these proverbs, these wise sayings that they kind of either came up with or already had, revealed something about their beliefs a little bit about who they were, even though these are made-up stories. You ever wonder, um, who was the first to try certain food? Because the, the reason I bring this up is because uh, the other thing that stories do is they pass on truths that have already been uncovered. They pass on truths that have already been covered. And so there's things that we eat, there's things in our diet today that other people have already figured out, hey, this tastes great. You know, mix these things, put these things together, and this is just awesome. There's some things that I just, I wonder who was the first person to get there. Who was the first person to say, you know what, I think I'm going to put that in my mouth and eat it. You know, are you familiar with the, the durian fruit? I think I'm pronouncing it right. Uh, you, you may have been, and I know it's called that. Uh, I had the, the experience of seeing this stuff. Uh, so Malaysia is where I saw it, but it's also Indonesia, kind of Southeast Asia and whatnot. It, it's this two to, f to seven pound fruit. I mean, it's this big ball, and it's covered in spikes. I mean, that's actually what during means, it's spiked fruit. I mean, it's this big ball that's covered in spike, uh, spikes. It, actually, the, the, the orchard that it, whenever they're, they're harvesting these things, 
very common that they will have a net strung from tree to tree to tree. It actually serves a couple purposes. One, it catches the fruit as it falls. You don't pick it, you wait for it to fall. Um, it, it keeps it off the ground from any critters or animals that would eat it because they're attracted to it. Um, but it also saves your life. This thing is so spiked and so heavy that if it hits you on the head, it can do some serious damage. So you got this big, goofy-looking fruit. You cut it in half. It's just, it looks disgusting inside. I thought, well, maybe I should put a picture up there. No, I'm not going to subject you to that. Um, it looks disgusting. You know, to really put it in perspective, let me just read from you a small uh, section of Wikipedia about the durian fruit. Some people regard the durian as having a pleasantly sweet fragrance. Sounds good. Others find the aroma overpowering with an unpleasant odor. The smell evokes reactions from deep appreciation to intense disgust and have been described variously as rotten onions, turpentine, and raw sewage. The persistence of its odor, which may linger for several days, has led to the fruit's banishment from certain hotels and public transportation in Southeast Asia. I don't know who's on that one side of this smelling good to them, but they got to be the ones who said, all right, well, let's try this. This might be good. Because in many cultures and in many places, uh, this is a common staple in their diet. It's a common part of something you can go to the grocery store and see all the time. It's made its way in the U.S. Um, but it's like, who, who first thought, hey, you know that thing that smells like raw sewage? Let's see if it's edible. I mean, but, but these are stories, truths so you can pass on through different stories. You know, there's other things people probably try. Nope, nope, not edible. We'll put the not edible category. These are truths that we can share in our stories. I mean, stories just carry so much value and significance. Uh, move from a culture to an organization or, or, or a smaller group of people, family maybe, even individual relationships. Stories tell memories of past experiences, and, and as we reminisce on them, they, they help draw you closer together. My wife and I were actually found ourselves doing this last night. We went out for dinner with the family, and uh, just by chance, we started talking about some of the places we used to go when we first started dating, and some of the things we did in, in college. Remember we went to that place or this place? Oh, yeah, yeah. It was just, we got to remember when we were at that stage of life and, and look back and see how much we've grown. And it revealed some of those truths as far as how we've drawn uh, closer together as well. As we share these stories about each other's lives, it reminds you, hey, you know what, we've, we've been through some stuff, haven't we? Right? We, we all have those friends where we can say, yeah, there's, there's stories we don't tell anymore because we just shouldn't, you know? Uh, but we've been, we've been through some stuff. But it reminds you of, of the loyalty and faithfulness that you have with those relations, relationships. These stories just share so much. How often do you find yourself gathered around uh, a fire, gathered around food, or gathered around some kind of festivity? And the focus of the conversation is sharing stories because they matter. They, they reveal things about who we are, about what matters to us, and what we believe. Even negative, sad, and tragic stories have value once we make it through the other end. And even in the process of getting there, there's value in that. Stories of restoration, healing, and redemption can give us hope on, on our own issues. As we hear other people's stories and, and how God has brought them through the other side, they can bring us hope as well. Everyone loves a good story. This is evident. As you look at, at our media, whatever your choice of media is, whether it be movies, TV, novels, comic books, I, I don't know uh, what, what your source of uh, hearing a good story is, but go in any one, pick any genre, and there's a problem that we see. And so every story has a beginning. Here's where we start our story. And the problem is every story has an end, right? 
We've all experienced that. Whatever your medium is, whether you're watching a movie and then those two hours pass and all of a sudden it's over and you have to go back to life. Or you're reading that novel and it's like all of a sudden you get to that last page and you you close the book and you set it down. We we, we fight this. That's why there's so many sequels and trilogies and whole entire uh, cinematic universes. That's why there's um, all these different ways to, to get the same story, even variants and tangents, where if you read uh, stories from the same uh, kind of genre or, or uh, storyline, sometimes they don't even line up because they, they took a tangent, each one on their own little storyline, because we just want more and more of the story. But every story comes to an end. We're, we're, we're telling a, a Christmas story here this morning uh, in the season ahead as well. We're celebrating and preparing for Christmas. What's interesting is this is a story that has no end. I want you to see that. Don't don't be lost on that point. The Christmas story is one that has no end. This isn't just something that we celebrate like a birthday. Happy birthday, Jesus. I got you a cake and I'm wearing my goofy sweater. We love you. All right, we'll see you next year. No, but it's a celebration of a significant moment, but it's of a story that lasts forever. Because it's the only story that has a revelation of eternity and has an invitation into a relationship that brings us into that place of eternity. Some of us are are, are very familiar with the Christmas story. You could be up here saying, okay, let me tell you, walk you through the Christmas story. Here's all the different things that happen and what take place. Uh, If that's you, this season, be the storyteller. Be a storyteller in your family, in your workplace, in your community. And not just the one who, when you, you see um, a, a worldly telling of the Christmas story and they just butcher it, not just the one who says, well, actually, there were, uh, we don't know how many wise men there were. I mean, yes, we can get the truth out there, but um, that's, that's a good thing. But, but tell the story of hope and restoration and healing and how God saves his people. Be a storyteller if you're familiar with the story. Some of us are in this place of, of kind of, I know bits and pieces, but if I really got quizzed, I, I don't know what's in the nativity scene. And should they all even be there together? Did they all come at the same time? Were there a bunch of sheep and animals around when all this is going on? I don't know. It's like that one movie you see every, every Christmas, but you never see the beginning of it because you're just flipping channels and all of a sudden you come across it. Oh, I've seen the end of that movie 27 times, but I have no idea what's going on because I've never seen the beginning. Maybe that's where you're, you stand with the Christmas story. I know pieces of it, but I'm not sure I got the whole thing. And if that's you... Hey, we're going to walk through it here, uh, through this whole series. Some of you have never heard the Christmas story. You've never heard what the true Christmas story is about. And see, this time of year, every time I see a Christmas story being told, it always has that pivotal moment where it has to say, here's what the season's all about. Here's what Christmas is all about. And the majority of the ones I see get it completely wrong. So we're going to tell you that Christmas story, what it's about i got good news for you if you've never heard it before. It's a story about a God who saves. It's a story about a God who sees that his people, his creation, stand apart from him because they've chosen to go their own way. And those decisions go uh, in a way counter to what God would have for us. A scripture called that sin. Missing the mark of God's perfection, of God's plan for our lives. And that sin separates us from God. And so if you ever were to ask, well, why do I need Jesus? Why do I need to trust in him? It's because there there is sin in our lives that separates us from our creator, that separates us from God. And so in order to to live in eternity with our creator, we need to deal with that sin. 
And God, knowing this, provides a way where he sends his son, Jesus, who lives a perfect life. He's the only one who didn't deserve death because of how he lived his life, and yet he laid down his life at the cross so that when we trust in him for the forgiveness of sin, his death pays the price for our sins. And we can trust in him. And this gets the story, more to the story that we celebrate on Easter, but we, it's all the whole same story. And so when we look at the story of Christmas, this is the moment in history where God is saying, okay, here's, here's, here's the focal point. Everything's been building up to this point where a Savior will come and provide a way for us to be forgiven of our sin so we can be in relationship with God. So let's look at that story. We started last week looking at some of the backstory. Look at some of the prophecy that's been told. We look at some of the, the patriarchs uh, of the Jewish faith. Uh, we specifically looked at a point in their history called the Passover. We had this door up here as an illustration uh, to remind us of that point in history. If you're familiar with Advent, uh, Advent is a time where we celebrate the coming of Jesus, right? And so we're in Advent right now, and we're at week two of the Advent uh, calendar, if you follow that, it's, it's simply a tool that you can use to celebrate the season. It's nothing you're going to find in Scripture where we're called to live it out, but simply a tool that we can use uh, to remember and to celebrate this time of year. And typically it has the five candles you can see on the screen, and each week that goes by, you light another candle as you celebrate and remember a different part of the story. Instead of lighting candles, we have the digital ones up there, we're also going to use a door as an illustration of different aspects of the story. And so the first door was uh, something modeled looked like a kind of a simple slave door and told the story of Passover where they trusted in the Passover lamb, a lamb's blood that was shed and put over the doorpost so that all who were in this home were safe when death would come through Egypt. And that was that last plague where, the, where death came through and the firstborn uh, of every family and every uh, animal group died. Except those who were protected, who were saved by the blood of the lamb. And that really begins to tell the, reveal the character of the main character of our story, which is God. It tells who he's like. Helps us, reminds us that, that to see that we're in bondage too in our own sin, in our own ways that we've gone against the word of God. And so just like the Jews needed to be saved from their captivity, we need to be saved from our sin. And the more we can understand our need for a Savior, the more that brings us to a place of celebration and who that Savior is. That was all last week. And this week we're going to jump to a new door. We're going to look at the story of Bethlehem. And this is a door that's made to represent the inn. It's actually one of those double doors. I don't know if this was the style they would have had there. Um, but if you're familiar with the story, uh, awesome. If you're not, we're going to cover it. But there's this point in the story that said there's no room for them in the inn. So maybe come with some vision. You know, okay, that the door would open to get some information, but that the door was never fully open for them to be welcome inside because there wasn't room for them in the inn. And so that's the point of these doors, is simply uh, visual illustrations to remember the points of the story. So we had the backstory that we covered this morning. We're going to start with the end. We're going to start in Bethlehem. See, an angel that came to Mary and basically said, you saw that in the video that this began our time, while it wasn't uh, word for word precise with this, this uh, Christmas story through a uh, ch child's eyes, um, they, they got the g general gist of it. That an angel comes to Mary and says, uh, you're going to be pregnant with, with God's son. And goes to Joseph and says, hang on, this is legit. This is really what's happening. And they embrace that, and they travel uh, to Bethlehem. And this is where our story starts. If you've got your Bibles, you can go ahead and open up to Luke chapter 2. Um, it's going to be on the screen as well. Luke chapter 2. We're going to begin in verse 1. 
If you want to turn on a Bible, go digital. Uversion is a great app I recommend. Uh, if you have another one that you use, awesome. There's Wi-Fi in the building uh, if you want to download an app and, and use that for getting God's Word in front of you. But Luke 2, verse 1 through 7. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all, that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Cornelius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the end. Do you know any good fishing stories? It's one thing to embellish a good fishing story. I mean, I, I get that. You know, it makes it a little more exciting. I mean, it's not going to be life-changing. Uh, I got a buddy I, I fished with quite often. He's, he's actually, he lost an arm um, just in birth. And he's, he's a one-armed fisherman. Uh, wild story. And, and, and he tells this one story of the biggest fish he's ever caught. And I, I swear, every time he tells that story, the fish gets bigger and bigger. I mean, the last time he told me this story, he's like, Steve, that fish was this big. Turn and tell your neighbor. Makes sense. But the reason I bring that up is, <laughs> I thought I was sinking just for a moment there. That was, that, was, that was dad joke gold right there. That's gone through a few generations and been kind of whittled down to just that gem right there. <laughs> your, your homework for the day is, is go and find someone who can tell what you learned at church and tell that joke too. So sometimes we can embellish a story, but a story like this, it's important to, to maintain the, the accuracy of the truth. We need to say, okay, this is what's really happening. Sometimes we try to read our own stories, and this, which, which is fine, but when we're telling these stories, make sure that we're, we're, we're looking at what's really happening here. Which means we should engage with this story. How many times have you heard this and maybe never fully engaged in the Christmas story? Never stop and ask questions. Never became a film critic who said, oh, hang on a sec, why, why are they doing this? She's pregnant. Why are they traveling? If you've ever had kids and either been pregnant and traveled or had a, a spouse who's pregnant and been traveling, it's not fun. It does, it, nothing is easier when you're pregnant, except maybe falling down. The getting up's even harder, but getting down is maybe a little easier, not as comfortable, um, but nothing is easy. This is a guy saying this. I got you know, my wife come up here, and I'm sure there could be all these other better examples, but nothing's easier. And yet, so, I mean, do you ever think about those kind of questions? Those are fair questions to ask. The Word of God, this is, this is telling true stories of things that actually happen. Yes, there's value. Like I said, I started off in, in both fiction and nonfiction stories, but I think sometimes those lines get blurred. And we forget that, well, yeah, this isn't just a, a story we tell our kids that it's fun to do this time of year, but this is something that really happened. Why, why did Joseph and Mary travel? She was about to give birth. Well, we read, okay, there was a legal obligation. There was a census that was to be called, and you had to go back to your hometown. Well, if, he, if he's from Nazareth, isn't that his home? Why does he have to leave Nazareth? Well, it was you go back to your ancestral hometown, which for him was the city of David, which was Bethlehem. And so they had to travel to Bethlehem. Well, why, why did they make plans for a place to stay? Well, his cell phone was broken. I mean, we, we, we forget some of these simple things. I mean, like, communication would have been that much more difficult. And the thinking of, okay, we've got to get to town, and then we'll, we'll do the best we can. 
Why, why didn't they stay with family if this was their hometown? Maybe there was family there that they could have pursued. Maybe they even did. We'll get to that in a minute. But again, this is their ancestral hometown. So maybe, you know, you can be somewhere and all of a sudden you've been living there for 10 years and you realize three houses down is, is your cousin and you didn't even know it. Because, you know, the, the, families, the family trees can get so large that you don't always know everybody. But, so maybe they didn't have any, any direct family members there that they could have stayed with. But really, they, they just, oh, there's no room in the, in, the, in, the iron, in, in the inn. Let's just go to the barn and have a baby there. Just put them in the bed. You know, did you ever stop and just kind of question some of that? And those are fair questions to ask. We, we can look at this word in. It's actually, uh, kataluma is the, the Greek there that translates as in. And some uh, places actually can translate as, as guest room. So some scholars have, have taken that and run with it to say, well, actually what happened is um, they're they staying at a, a family house and it's basically saying there's no, room, in the, there's no uh, uh, room for them where the guests would stay. And so they stayed where, where the animals would be. And, and technically, it doesn't say she had the baby in that place. Maybe she had the baby, you know, in a place to be a little more comfortable, but then once all that was done, hey, your room is still where the animals are because we have no more space for you, uh, and everyone else had already called dibs. But I, I look at that, I'm like, well, i got to imagine. Again, this is inference. This isn't, you know, what, I'm just trying to make sense. You, know, you should do this too. Try to make sense of what you're reading. Well, maybe you'd think if they were there with family that they would have said, hey, by all means, Mary, take my room. Take my room. You got a brand new baby. Either you believed her and said, hey, this is the son of God, or you thought she was crazy because she says the son of God. Either way, hey, you need a room to yourself, you know? <laughs> Kids, get away from Aunt Mary. I don't know how that played out, but... But honestly, a commercial inn fits better. I think that's why most Bible translators go to this term inn. Because that would make sense why no one would want to give up their room because they don't know who this is. They probably don't know what's even happening. If someone came to a hotel you were staying in and said, hey, I need a room. Nope, sorry, we're all booked. But I really need a room. You wouldn't even know what's going on. You'd be in your room or down poolside. I think the Bethlehem Inn had a pool. Um, I, I'm, I'm kidding on that one. Had a fishing pond, though. That fish was this big. <laughs> so we, we can ask questions like this and, and truly engage with the story. And I, I want us to, to sit in this for a minute. I want us to engage with this whole aspect of Bethlehem. That's what we're looking at here this morning. And this indoor is supposed to represent Bethlehem. And we actually can turn to Micah chapter 2. If you got your Bible, again, go to Micah chapter 2. I'm sorry, chapter 5, verse 2 is where we're going to start. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. It will be on the screen as well. Um, so Micah is a, a contemporary of Isaiah. Uh, so they're about the same time, and um, if Isaiah is kind of the, the, the city prophet you know, from Jerusalem, uh, Micah is like the country prophet. Uh, so he's from a smaller place, a smaller town. And, uh, but he, he wrote these prophecies to, to God's people. So we have the split kingdom, if you know the history of, of the Jews, the history of Israel. Uh, we have the northern kingdom, which is now known as Israel. And we have the southern kingdom, which is Judah. And he's writing the, this letter to, to all of God's people. And we come to this point here in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, where there's a complete change in tones, a complete change in what he's saying. But it says this here. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth uh, for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now... He shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be in their place. 
Let's just do what we were just talking about. Let's take a moment to engage with this text and ask some questions about it and understand it more. Micah 5, 2, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Well, why does it have this extra title on there? Well, there's actually potentially, this is one of two Bethlehems. So it's clarifying which one it is. It's also an older name the town would have gone by. And just a fun little tangent. Bethlehem uh, means house of bread. It's interesting that God comes as a man who's going to grow and say, I am the bread of life. He was born in a place called the house of bread. And after, I apologize if I'm butchering it, those who, who uh, have the pronunciation there, but uh, Ephrathah is an older name, and it means place of fruitfulness. And again, I just, how beautiful is that, the Son of God, who, who's going to say, I'm the, the vine and you are the branches, whoever is in me, so I have eternal life. You know, this picture of fruitfulness is born in a place called the place of fruitfulness. We get this line here, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. This is both descriptive and, and a little bit demeaning of Bethlehem. Bethlehem was a very small village comparatively uh, to the city of Jerusalem, which was just a few, about five miles south of. Um, but in essence saying, you know, Bethlehem is just kind of ins- insignificant. If we're going to list all the towns, you know, we, we don't even really need Bethlehem. Hey, have you found yourself on Google Maps at all? Whether you're just kind of looking at aerial views because it's fun to do or because you're trying to find your way around somewhere. You know, you can zoom in, right? So if you zoomed out, you see USA, United States of America. You know, you kind of zoom in a little bit, you see your state and some of the big cities in Chicago and Springfield pop up there. And you kind of keep zooming in, keep zooming in. And, and you know, if you're from Johnsburg, you've probably experienced this if you've done this before. But you see McHenry, and then you see Spring Grove, and you see Fox Lake, and then you keep zooming in. Oh, and there's Johnsburg. That would be Bethlehem. It would be like, you'd have to get like as far in as you can get, you know, street-level view. It's like, and there's Bethlehem. We didn't even really need to list it. You're watching the, the, the weather every day in Bethlehem, just waiting for them to say, Bethlehem, 17 degrees, or whatever that would be, you know. But it never happens because Bethlehem is too insignificant to be counted. I mean, this, is, this is the place where the Savior is born, just a small little town. Maybe you've driven through some of those small towns that have one stoplight. If it's green, you miss the whole town. I mean, that, that's Bethlehem. But then we get this contrast. Uh, from you shall come forth from me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. A ruler is to come from Bethlehem. And when the Jews would have read this, most likely it would have reminded them of something. Well, Bethlehem, I've heard that before. Why, why do I know Bethlehem? The, the, the king that would have had the Best remembrance, remembrance in, in the history of the Jews have been King David. Every time you, you want to say, okay, this is the king we should strive to have as the one that was like King David. He was a, a man after God's own heart. Yeah, he made some mistakes, but he, he pursued God and he brought us to God. Well, king David was born in Bethlehem. This is the city of David because that's where David was from. And all of a sudden you get this prophecy from a prophet saying, hey, a ruler will be born in this town. Man, this, is, this is unexpected. An unexpected ruler is going to be born in an unexpected town. A ruler will come from Bethlehem. We keep going in verse 3. Therefore he shall give, give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. 
Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And this is the interesting part about prophecy is it, is it has an implication both in the present tense but also in future. And so you could say, oh, the she who's going to give birth, that's Mary. We know that looking back. We say, okay, there's, there's, that's how it's fulfilling the prophecy. Yes, there's a, a, a woman who's giving birth to a son, and that son is the Savior, this rule that was, was foretold. But prophecy can get real, challenge, real challenging to nail down. We come across a piece of prophecy in Scripture, I encourage you to look within the text for clarification. Look around the text for clarification. If we jump earlier to Micah chapter 4, verse 9 and 10, we see a similar illustration between a, a woman who is having labor pains. And this illustration is clarified that the woman represents the people of Israel, Zion, and these labor pains are, are the pain of exile or separation. We also see this promised deliverance. That despite these challenges, despite this pain, that there is deliverance that is promised to God's people. And so we can see in Micah chapter 5, this prophecy begins to unfold that uh, not only will a ruler come from Bethlehem, but a birth will lead to restoration. A birth will lead to rescue of God's people. And we finish out that verse. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock, verse 4, in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth and he shall be their peace. What's interesting is that line there, in the strength of the Lord, a lot of the rabbis and Old Testament scholars anticipated one who would come in God's strength, not so much one who is God's son. Because they saw that and they said, oh, this, this is going to be like others who have come on behalf of God where the Holy Spirit came upon them and, and, and did some things in the name of God. It was pretty awesome stuff. They didn't see coming. And look back to verse 2. Whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. This isn't just someone who's coming in the strength of the Lord. This is someone who's been around since the beginning, from of old, from ancient days. One is coming who existed before, and he shall be their peace. Verse 5 there, he shall be their peace. It's important to acknowledge how Israel would have seen peace. It's not just a lack of conflict, uh, but to Israel, uh, it's this word shalom. Shalom would also be used as a greeting or as a salutation when you, when you part ways. It's more than just peace. It has the sense of complete peace, contentment, wholeness. And so as we unpack this, we engage with this text, we can begin to see that the birth of this ruler that is to come will bring peace. What an awesome prophecy. What, what an amazing story that's being told, that's being unfolded here through Micah that then we can celebrate at the Christmas story as we see it unfold. Roughly 800 years before Jesus was born, Micah is saying a Messiah is going to come. He is going to save. He's going to be born here in Bethlehem. And he's going to bring shalom. He's going to bring peace. See, our story today that we're talking about began with a young pregnant couple traveling to Bethlehem. They sought out a room in the inn, and they didn't make it in. They landed in a place where animals would be kept and their baby was born and laid in a place where animals would eat. I wonder how much peace was actually present that night for them. Or was it panic? And again, the scriptures don't really un reveal all that. They don't unveil all that. So we need to be cautious not to read ourselves into the text here. See, a few things I want to I close with is this. God's story works through unexpected means. God's story works through unexpected means. Bethlehem was the least of towns. There was no room in the inn. Uh, this potential fear that they may have had was realized. Now, we don't know if this was something that they would have freaked out about. I, I know majority of people that I know, and myself as well, if I had to travel somewhere, and a pregnant wife was about to give birth, 
and there's no hotel for them, and there's no place to go, and we're sleeping in the car and trying to find, you know, a shed or something, some way to get some shelter to go have a baby, I'd be freaking out. Oh, on top of all this, that's right, I have to deliver a baby. Okay, um, great, awesome. You know, but again, how much of that am I reading my own culture into it? Where, you know, majority of babies are born in hospitals with doctors who have all these training experience, and if something goes wrong, there's all this uh, expertise readily available. You know, it's not everybody's story, but the, the day and age that we live, we, we try to mitigate as much fear and, and potential for wrong and, and mistakes and issues and challenges. And all that was out of their control. Now, again, the, the promise of this was the Savior, so you've got to imagine they probably assume maybe the birth was going to go okay, but we, we need to be careful not to put our own panic as we, put our, as we try to say, what would I be like there, into, the, into their story. So maybe there was peace, maybe there was panic. You got the song Silent Night, you know, no crying he make. He was a baby, okay? There, there was noise going on, okay? I, I don't know how, again, maybe it was this joy of a, a child, they didn't care, but maybe it was panic and freaking out. But it, again, we just need to be careful in that. But the point I, I want to hit on here is that God's story works through unexpected means. The one thing I think we can be sure of is if we would have talked to Mary and Joseph before they got to Bethlehem and said, hey, what, what do you think is going to happen besides this baby being born? I bet you ending up with a baby in a manger is the last thing they would have come with come up with so the question we can ask ourselves is are we open to where god may ask us to go are we willing to follow god even when that leads us to less than ideal circumstances are we willing to embrace the adventure because the fact that god works through unexpected means also means that god's story leads us through unexpected challenges the fact that god works through unexpected means means that god's story will lead us through unexpected challenges mary gets the joy and honor and privilege of, of, of carrying the Messiah and being his mother. But she also has to deal with the stigma of being seen as someone who possibly cheated on her husband or didn't wait till marriage, which in that culture would have carried a much higher uh, social stigma than it does today. Maybe she's uh, viewed as a kook when she says, hey, you know, yeah, this isn't Joseph's baby. This is the son of God. This is God's baby. Maybe she lost some friendship. I mean, just guesses, inferences into this, what, what may have happened, but you can see that this unexpected means of God working through her probably led to some unexpected challenges. Joseph gets to help raise the Son of God and gets a front row seat to God's story unfolding here. And yet, now he's got to find a place. Hey, I, I had the room all set up. I had a, a kosher uh, crib that was OSHA approved, and it was all set, and it had the mobile over it. You know, no color because that's too stimulating and that kind of stuff. And um, I'm, I'm teasing. Um, <laughs> but oh no now we got to go to bethlehem for the census that just threw my plan out the window okay mary grab your go bag get your ipod with, with your birthing music whatever it is and let, let, let's go and you know they they, they they go traveling and okay here's the plan we're going to get there we're the first in we're going to find we're going to go we're going to get a room and, and, and you know what we're going to this is we'll be okay we'll be okay okay oh, this, this, there's no room for us in this in okay well there's another one over there so that okay well no there's not another one this is bethlehem they only have one in uh you know gotta wonder if you know he had some unexpected challenges as he was following God. Have you ever expected that following Jesus would make everything easier? Have you ever been told that, that following Jesus will make everything easier? Have you ever told someone that? Hey, just receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Everything will be good after that. It's not the truth. Because God works through unexpected means, and that leads to unexpected challenges. But are you still open to following God even when it gets messy? difficult or unexpected while it may not get easier following jesus brings purpose to everything 
brings purpose and value to everything we do. It gives a reason for living, a reason for engaging in community, a reason for loving others, a reason for life. It's why we are made is to be with our Creator. Following Jesus makes that possible. Last thing I just comment I want to make on this is that God is faithful to save. That's the story. The story we're celebrating this season is that God is faithful to save his people. Our role in this is to surrender ourselves to God's plan. Mary surrendered to God and his plan. Joseph surrendered to God and his plan. And that brought them to an inn that was full in Bethlehem, which led them to a manger with a brand new baby. And see, I, I think this is something that, just a revelation that God just gave me even yesterday in a whole other conversation, but uh, about what surrender truly is. I think sometimes we, we fall in line. Do you know that song, Jesus Take the Wheel? I think we see that as surrender, right? Where you're, you're driving in your car of life, and all of a sudden things are freaking out, and there's all this stuff going on. Maybe it's your own mess that you caused. You know, you're on your cell phone, you're trying to eat a burger, and your gas cap's open, and you're out to get whatever it is, you know. Or it's just the, the, the storms of life that are beating on your car. Things you had no control over that just are happening to you. Or maybe it's both. I mean, just everything is a mess. And you're driving your car life, and all of a sudden, I, I can't do it anymore. You throw your hands up in the air. Jesus, take the wheel, and, and you're, you're just, I'm done. I surrender to you. I think for so many of us, that is the picture. Up until yesterday, that was my picture of surrender. To say, a God who saves, okay, I surrender to you, God. Okay, there's my life. What do you want to do with it? It's all yours. I couldn't have been more wrong. Because true surrender to God isn't a letting go of the wheel, but it's a firming our grasp on it. True surrender to God is keeping the foot on that gas pedal when God says go. True surrender to God says, okay, I'm in this car, I'm driving it. Where do you want to go, God? True surrender allows him to say where to go, but it still takes our full engagement. That's the difference. It still takes our full engagement. It's not a throwing our hands up and saying, God, whatever you want. It's just saying, I'm all in this. Where do you want to go? I will follow. And the challenge in that is that means our hands are still on the wheel. So at any point, we can take control over. God said turn right, but left looks a lot easier. God said stay straight, but I just want to pull over and, and cry. Just fine, we go back on straight. <laughs> And so surrender to God still is full engagement in your life. And so wherever you are in your walk with God, I, I just want you to think on that. I want you to think, of what does that look like to be a part of this crazy story that God is unfolding where he's promising to save his people and we're seeing that unfold as the, we celebrate the birth of Jesus and all that that means. These unexpected means that lead to unexpected challenges and life gets crazy and all of a sudden, God's saying, do you trust me? Let us stand in a point where we keep our hands on that wheel and our foot on the gas and say, God, I do. Where do you want to go? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for this part of your story. We can look at Bethlehem and all that took place there. We thank you, Father, for uh, the example that we have as, as Mary and Joseph surrendered to you, Father, and trusted in you. And they continue to take steps forward. When they're told to go to Bethlehem, they went. When you're 
angel Gabriel revealed to them what was happening. They, they continued to follow you, Father. They didn't let up. They didn't take their hands off the wheel. They continued to surrender to you, Father. Let us follow after that example. Let us surrender our lives to Jesus. You have control. I know that that leaves us in a place to try and take it back at any point. So, Father, I pray that you be patient with us and be gracious with us as we fight that internal battle. Help us to see more clearly our, <coughs> our story, where you're taking us, what you're doing in our life. No matter how crazy it may look right now, Lord, give us uh, images of, of, of hope and peace that even while the storms may be all around us, that we know that we are complete in you and that we are whole in you. This Christmas season, help us to run to you, trust in you for all things. Praise all in your name. Amen.